The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thank you for joining me tonight. Looking forward to talking with our guest tonight, Robert Kopecki, about near-death experiences. He's had several of them. Have you found the noodle shark yet to save money? It's on Facebook. The noodle shark. The noodle shark. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the things that we really enjoy talking about, obviously our roots on this program go back to ghost hunting, ghosts, the spirit realm, that kind of thing. And although we talk about many, many different topics, whenever we can return to topics that are related to that, we get very excited. And tonight is one of those nights. We're going to be talking about near-death experiences with Robert Kopecki. He's an author, an artist, and he's survived multiple near-death near experiences. And we're going to talk about those experiences. Plus, he's written a couple of books about those experiences. He talks about them. He blogs about them. And uh, we're excited to have him on the program. Robert, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you here tonight. Thank you, JV. It's it's nice to be here. When you've had three near-death experiences, it's nice to be anywhere. <laughs> I would say uh, that's got to be very, very, yeah. very, very <laughs> true. <laughs> um, let's, let's start out by... Uh, kind of getting to know you a little bit. Um, I noted that uh, you talk about your childhood with some great importance, saying that you had a, had a pretty traumatic childhood. What happened to you as a child that you would say connects to what you're doing now? That connects to what I'm doing now? Um, well, other than just that I bring all my experiences to bear when I'm doing what I do now, um, there's not a great deal because, of course, near-death experience had nothing to do with my childhood. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, and I wasn't a spiritual, I wasn't raised in any kind of spiritual practice. It's just totally secular childhood. I didn't go to church, any kind of church or anything like that. But <clears throat> I had a similar experience to a lot of people's in that my father was an alcoholic, and our oh. home life was very difficult, and... and uh, I was rather estranged from it at a, at a fairly early age and started kind of seeking different ways to live for myself. I left home early, started traveling by the time, you know, about the time I got my uh, my driver's license, 16 or 17, I was I was off and I was trying to experience life, you know. Um yeah, I do know what you're talking about there. And uh those are formative, well, difficult. They're actually very uh, formative experiences um that we all I probably have some version of that in our lives, and they do, right. they do kind of steer us through a course that ends up bringing us to where we ultimately uh, want to be or end up being. Um, when it comes to near-death experiences, we've talked about this on the program quite a bit, and some people confuse near-death experiences with out-of-body experiences. For you, how do you define near-death experience? Well, uh, you know, the near-death experience is when somebody is put in a position of great jeopardy, danger, or injury, and uh, has uh, comes back from it with a um, a kind of extra-dimensional experience. That you know, some people for some people it may be uh, 
um, a mountaineering accident where they almost fall to their death. For other people, it's being hit by a bus and surviving it, you know. Uh, so the, the near-death experience as such really it covers a fairly broad spectrum of things. Now, for me, I had three near-death experiences over the course of about 15 years. The first one was an out-of-body experience. Uh, so my, uh, my take on the whole thing is a little different from some other people's because uh, people who had one near-death experience, not that I'm saying that it's any better, right, sure. please don't follow my example, <laughs> you know. Um, the, the fact was that all three of my near-death experiences were very different, one from the other. And so um, what started to really interest me about them after I finally got to a point in my life where I was able to really uh, confront them and deal with them was, um, why are they so different? How come I didn't go to the same place? Why, now I've heard hundreds, if not thousands, of near-death experiences, and they are all rather... Uh, um, specially tailored or custom made to each of the of the participants, to each of the experiencers. At, at some point here, I do want to get into your 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 specific near death experiences and have you tell us exactly what happened and what you experienced with each of those. But before, in a more general sense, once you started talking about those experiences and you had other people telling you what their experience was, did you find any common threads in them? Are all of these experiences uh, similar in any way? Oh, yeah. Uh, and that is, um, that is the kind of the takeaway uh, for me in terms of the experiences themselves. Um, a lot of things change, uh, one story to the next. And in fact, uh, something that I discovered when I started to, um, to research them, when I found myself, after my first book, um, How to Survive Life and Death, I found myself part of the community of near-death experiencers. And I started to uh, investigate more into it, having never really investigated into it myself right. uh, be- before that, and discovered that they, um, you know, they're pretty culturally exclusive. Uh, so that if you are an, a Hindu in India and you have a near-death experience, it's going to be an Indian Hindu near-death experience. And and uh, the same is true for all different cultures and, and different religions and disciplines and the like. And it was the case for me having uh, three different ones. But what is consistent throughout them all, um, it, it applies more to heaven. Because My second book is How to Get to Heaven Without Really Dying. That's the important part, <laughs> How to Get to Heaven Without Really Dying. Um, the, the idea that, uh, that heaven as such is a state of being, that everybody has had a little piece of it one time or another. And when I went to what you would call heaven in each of these three experiences, the things that were consistent with them and that I have since learned were consistent in other experiences were sensations of pure love, some kind of radiant illumination, a sensation of transcendent unity, an aspect of karmic instruction, and this kind of eternal renewal or return, kind of a rebooting, as it were. And uh, those are the aspects of the state of being that I refer to as being heaven uh, that are consistent throughout all of them across cultures, and certainly in my three. 
And I want to try to understand this because I did did ask or did want to ask the question about religion and culture and how that may uh, create differences in these experiences, depending on what your specific religion and or culture happens to be. Use the example of Indian Hindu. Um, when we've had people talk about their near-death experiences on this program, very rarely do they say with any certainty who they see, who they talk to. They, they they talk more abstractly in the sense that there's a great light or there's a being with a lot of light right. or, you know, and it's, and that being could be the, the God we know as the Christian God. It could be the Hindu God. It could be the Muslim God. I mean, and there are obviously some connections to those too, but that lack of specificity makes me think that maybe all of these folks, regardless of culture and religion, are having a very similar experience, seeing the same things, but they just define them in terms of what they know. Is that a legitimate observation? Yeah, absolutely. And the, the way that I have come to, to think of it over, <clears throat> over the years since these, these things happened to me <clears throat> is that I am carrying a package of karma, of, of um, karmic data, so to speak, that makes up who I am. <clears throat> that I was I was alive before I was born. I'm alive after I die. It's kind of a seamless thing. I'm a visitor to this realm, so to speak. I'm you know I'm experiencing this life, and that I I move from one life. We all move from one life to another. I mean, there are thousands of people dying at this very moment. Right? This is not an unusual yeah. thing. It's only unusual to us to have this happen, and <clears throat> and so I'm uh, I'm constantly experiencing what my package of karmic data is directing me towards or creating for my experience. Um, and only having this language to report on these apparently extra-dimensional, I think of them as being extra-dimensional experiences. Um, when you come back from them, when anybody comes back from them, they only have this familiar language with which to report it, and I, I know for myself that I'm only able to uh, to tell you about um, things that I, the way that I relate to them. So right. there's a there's a kind of a pattern recognition that I think that we bring back with us, or that we take with us over to what you might call the other side, that is informing uh, the report or the experience itself. You know, if that makes sense to you. Sure. Yeah, it does. You use the word extra-dimensional here. Is that uh, another word for spiritual, or is, or is it something different? Yes, it's another word for spiritual, yeah. Um, I'm a, I am not a materialist. <laughs> you know, there's, there are these schools of thought about uh, what, what is being experienced in, in these um, out-of-body or uh, uh, shared death experiences, um, even astral travel, uh, stuff like that, or, or uh, even synchronicity, uh, in fact. I believe that, uh, that consciousness is fundamental and that I am experiencing the field of consciousness that's channeling through the package that I am, and that when I go into this extra dimension outside of this life that I have apparently come from, too, that uh, what is created there for me is a function of that information and its interaction with this field of, of consciousness, this great field of, uh, of intelligence that's, that's uh, 
a matrix of loving intelligence that responds to uh, my package of, of karmic data. I, I don't mean to get in the weeds too much with it, but this is the way that I relate to it. I, I had, having had an out-of-body experience, what's called a, uh, um, a life review and what's called a forced return to life, but those are the three experiences, in each of those states, I was, it was extra-dimensional. You know, most definitely, too, the out-of-body experience, which was definitively extra-dimensional. You said that when you were being raised, you, didn't, um, you weren't particularly religious. Um, would you consider yourself to be religious now? No, I would not. Um, only in the sense of the sort of etymology of, of religion being religio to reattach you to relink you. Um, in that sense, I'm never uh, detached from a spiritual reality, uh, so to speak. So I'm always, uh, I guess, because of the experiences I had, I'm always just a kind of a, a moment away from uh, experiencing life on a much larger field or a much larger canvas than people who I gather than people who haven't had these experiences. Uh, the title of your most recent book, the newer book, is How to Get to Heaven Without Really Dying. And you've kind of defined this for us already, but in the use of the word heaven in your title, what are we talking about? We're talking about the, the state of being is what it is. Um, it's kind of loaded, and I do get uh, <clears throat> I do get some opposition sometimes by people who have uh, you know a, a, a very um, dogmatic uh, identification or, or definition of heaven uh, as being a Christian thing or uh, a Muslim thing. Um, what I'm really talking about is this state of being, this state of grace that we can inhabit in this life and that we can inhabit in any life. All a life is kind of the same uh, to me. I, I've come to that kind of realization. Uh, we're always going to be alive, and we can, we can talk about how we manage that uh, from realm to realm. Uh, but the heaven that I'm talking about isn't a place, but is a state of being. And is this a concept that you learned as a result of your near-death experiences? Did you see this state of being? Did you experience this state of being uh, during one or uh, all of your near-death experiences? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I'll just tell you about my first one uh, briefly, because that was the one where I went to heaven, so to speak. Okay. And that took place when I was driving uh, back from dropping my wife off at the airport in Los Angeles in the mid-'80s. It was twilight. I was driving through an unfamiliar neighborhood, and I thought that the road, I thought the street went straight like all the other streets near it. Uh, so I wasn't paying real close attention because uh, this will tell you when this happened, too. My cassette tape malfunctioned. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it made that noise, and the tape... Uh, got eaten, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I ejected it and pulled it out, and it was stuck in there and stuff. And in the very next instant, <clears throat> I apparently came to a jog in the road I didn't expect, hit a kind of oddly parked car, glanced off of it, and went right into a light pole. Oof. I was going about 35 miles an hour or so, something like that. And um, 
the very next instant from that, then, I found myself at the level of the top of the light pole, next to the light that was kind of flickering on and looking down over the scene of the car crashed into the light pole with the windshield broken out and uh, somebody's arm hanging out the driver's side window, which I realized, you know, had to be me. Yours, yeah, that's right. I could look over uh, hedges and bushes into uh, yards in this kind of suburban neighborhood and see um, see porch lights going on and people coming out of, to see what had happened and and uh, people moving towards the, the scene of the accident and saying, call an ambulance. And, you know, I witnessed all of this from about 25 feet above. And at that time, I felt... This um, I had the experience of this great release, of this kind of boundaryless uh, liberation, you know, where I I don't remember having a body per se. I was myself because I can report on it as I saw it, you know. So it's like I had eyes to see it, and I was in a place. I was in this position at the top of the light pole. I did not feel alone. I felt as though. There was somebody uh, behind me to my upper left, and I tried to communicate with people on the ground to no avail. <clears throat> so I'm watching this whole thing take place, and I'm feeling like I am enfolded in love, right? And I'm having this sense of transcendent unity and sort of non-serial thought, you know, how we normally our thinking goes from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. Yeah. My thinking expanded and was kind of became part, it, the sense was that it became part of a larger mind. And witnessing all of this then <clears throat> was pretty fascinating, but kind of brief in a way, because I was shepherded away from the scene as they were starting to put my body into uh, the um, the back of the ambulance. I was kind of moved along by this entity that seemed to be behind me into what I recall <laughs> I recall as being kind of like a soft, warm cloud bank. Mm-hmm. I don't remember any transit. I don't remember the actual travel that took place then, but I do remember finding myself in a in a beautiful pastoral location, um, which is the heavenly aspect of it, you know, because a lot of people have this experience of going to this place that is just, like, naturally gorgeous, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the place that I recall being in was like a beautiful park or, like, beautiful nature, it wasn't wildly colored and didn't have, you know, like flying horses or anything like that. It was just like being in a really beautiful park. And I was undergoing this kind of um, interview or conversation with an entity, the details of which I can't really remember uh, uh, exactly. I do this thing when I'm remembering these experiences where I try not to elaborate on them uh, other than the way that they they came back to me immediately at the time. I've, I've witnessed people kind of grow their story, and I've had aspects of my stories grow for me, too, in meditation and the like. But when I tell you what happened, I don't add that additional stuff that came to me later. This is just the experience as I experienced it at the time. 
So I, I had this kind of an interview that was quite important. It seemed like some very important things were discussed, and it was in this beautiful place, and it, I have a sense of there being other entities around, not directly involved, but around. And uh, then I woke up in a hospital room, and it was 22 hours after the car accident. Oh, wow. So that was the only time that I actually went to a place that was heavenly in nature. And I've been to a lot of places like that in this life. That's why I can describe them to you, and that's how you know what I'm talking about. I'm not sure I, I got I got a clarification on this, so I'll ask it. But were you seeing these things? Like, can you describe them as visions, or were they more of a, a feeling and a sense that you were absorbing? No, this is a very specific kind of a memory, and that's one of the unusual things about these memories, because they are they are not dreamlike in the sense of their of they they're being unreal and random at all. <clears throat> For me, there is a sense of a, almost like a hyper-reality uh, to them. And this is something else that uh, other near-death experiencers will often uh, talk about, is that the memory of their experience is a different kind, has a different quality. It's a, a more uh, sort of concise or, um, you know, the extra-dimensional reality is unlike anything that you've ever experienced. And so it stands out more in your in your memory. Uh, it's not so dreamlike. Uh, it's more um, uh, quite specific. <clears throat> now I can't. Uh, with that said, there are certain aspects of it I do not remember. I do not remember this uh, pers- personage that I was talking to as as having a distinct identity. You know, I can't right. tell you who that was or what they looked like. And, and uh, that was the case in my other experiences. What was what was the conversation? Uh, you said it was kind of an interview. Was it was it about your life? Do yeah, you, you know, I don't really remember, and I presume that's what it was. It was about things that dealt with perhaps my childhood and the like. I mean, that's that's where the nature of my childhood comes into all of this is because I'm carrying this karma, yeah. this information of who I am based on my experiences and DNA and and heredity and all of that into this next dimension of potential. And there's this entity who's already there who's able to, one way or another, communicate with me about it. Uh, the precise conversation, I don't recall. I can't tell you what it was, and maybe I'm not supposed to remember. That's, that's it. Robert, we have to go to break here in just a couple of minutes, but do you know, uh, you probably have got reports anyway, what was happening to your physical body during this, at the point when you were hovering above the crash site and you saw your arm hanging out of the the, the driver's side window or whatever window it was, um, you know, to the point where you woke up in the hospital, do you know what happened to you, your physical body? Uh, no, not exactly. I mean, I, I knew at the, at the time that I was above, out of body, looking down at it, I started to pay more attention to things around the neighborhood and to trying to communicate and so I didn't witness my body being pulled out of the car. Instead, I saw it being put into the back of the ambulance. When I awoke, um, my head was heavily bandaged. I was in a hospital bed. There was a nurse there. I was hooked up to monitoring machinery. Um, I didn't have health insurance, so they basically, uh, the next day, loaded me into a yellow cab and sent me home. Oh, jeez. I, I didn't get any big report or anything. 
But a couple weeks later, I went back to the site of the crash, and I walked around it, and I saw and confirmed for myself that there were things that I only could have seen from a position 25 feet above. Wow. Wow. Um, we're talking with Robert Kopecki tonight. He's the author of a couple of books about his near-death experiences, what he experienced, and what he wanted to share from those experiences. Those books include How to Survive Life and Death and also How to Get to Heaven Without Really Dying. But again, tonight it's about near-death experiences. We were just uh, talking with Robert Kopecki about his first near-death experience. He's had three. I want to go back to that first experience, Robert, because there are a lot of elements of that that are, um, I guess, what would be uh, common threads with other folks who have had near-death experiences, particularly the out-of-body kind. And often there is this um, uh, view of what is happening from above. You know, and you, you, you said uh, 25 feet or so is you were hovering above, above this accident scene and you were watching what was transpiring. Do you think at that point your, your physical body... Um, was what we would call uh, dead, um, and that, and then once that happened, you said you were shepherded away. Um, is that how the body releases what we would consider to be, I guess, the soul, which would have been what was looking down upon the accident scene? Do you have any sense of that? Well, yes, I do. I mean, I don't, I don't, I can't really tell you what the mechanism of uh, exiting your body is. You know, I've I've read about it since and uh, learned that there are ways that you're supposed to go about it, you know, right ways and wrong ways that you're supposed to go about exiting uh, your body. I know that I was just knocked clean out of mine, apparently, yeah. like, you know, <laughs> right away. Um, but the thing that it does does do or did do for me i could i call it giving me having given me the gift of perspective of spiritual perspective so this this ability to objectively witness our lives as human beings you know where you're really you can kind of at any moment you can kind of pull yourself out of the situation you're in rise above it and look down on it with this kind of compassionate detachment this compassionate neutrality and see that everybody in the scene is subject to the limits of perception and experience that human form allows you. You know, you can only you can only channel through what a human can experience. Uh, and in that in that moment in the first near death experience, I was expanded out into what I think of as as this field of divine consciousness and this field of of uh, this matrix of loving intelligence. That's this field of potential, and witnessing the way that we filter down through these forms onto Earth, onto the situations of our life. So if you can get that, if you can work on that gift of perspective, and that's something I try to teach people how to do, uh, you can have this kind of liberating experience of life, where life is happening for you, not happening to you. What do you say to people who... Uh, poo-poo this whole notion and uh, you know there there are people that'll say oh it's just a lack of oxygen to the brain that's happening you know in a traumatic situation like that it's not you know it's not a spiritual event at all clearly you don't believe that what do you say to people who present that to you well you, i kind of come back to the fact that we're on a planet in outer space 
And if somebody can tell me what that means exactly and what authority that gives them as being absolutely certain what's going on here or not going on here, then I'd be happy to listen to them. <laughs> right. But, you know, the scientific reality or this, this kind of dogma that, that we're raised with is always changing, you know. That is a, that's a hoop that is always going farther away from us as we try to shoot that basket. And whatever we're uh, able to, um, whatever our perception is able to uh, open up to us, whether it's, it's looking through an electron uh, microscope into a very small world, or you know a, a, a collide, the hadron collider or something that describes you know a subatomic uh, dimension of life, or looking out uh, in the Hubble with the Hubble telescope into the cosmos, um, consciousness rushes into that and fills it, informs it, comes back and tells us what the reality is, and it's not until um, it's not until that flat Earth is rounded out <laughs> that we move on to the next thing, you know. So um, I, I certainly do uh, know for a fact that there is a tremendous amount of evidence regarding all of these kinds of experiences, reincarnation and uh, um, afterlife communication and the like, uh, that, that really holds up very, very well under scrutiny because, it's, you know, there's, there's even more strident kind of qualifications uh, required of it uh, because of the skepticism involved. So it's, it's a reality that, um, that is coming into or is, is entering into our lives. Consciousness is expanding in the world all the time. People are becoming more and more able to grasp and realize uh, this, these, uh, the potential of life constantly. I've often wondered if there was a way, and I, I don't necessarily think this is possible, but if there was a way that we could um, talk to somebody who has had a near-death experience with, and, and has had no knowledge of other people's near-death experiences, not heard any of the descriptions, and see if the description would be the same. Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, I kind of consider myself that way, in a way, because um, I think I saw In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy and a thing about the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, yeah. And that was all I I knew of near-death experience, um, because with my first one, uh, when I came back from it, you know, when I was recovering, and my wife at the time, and when I discussed it with people, with her and with other people, they just looked at me a little funnier than usual, and I decided that I really better not go there anymore, because it wasn't really serving a purpose in my life. I had no understanding of there being any kind of community. I didn't know about these books by uh, people like um, uh, uh, Kenneth Ring, for example, or PMH Atwater, who had written these books about near-death experience, and I didn't really have a great urge to investigate it. I just went back into my regular life, you know, doing what I was doing and being who I was, and it really wasn't until some years later that I had experiences that, that uh, sort of liberated me to the realization of, of the near-death experiences. Clearly, everything has changed for you. Did it change after the first near-death experience, after the second, or did it take all three? Uh, it changed more after the second than it did after the first, but it did take all three, and it actually even took a kind of a greater experience. Um, you know, this is where the whole story of one's life uh, comes into play, 
Some people have near-death experiences, and everything has changed completely for them from that point on. Yeah. Other people have them and suppress the experience, and it isn't until uh, years later that they're able to recognize it. I'm more in that latter camp because I had to go through all three and then experience what I would call a dark night of the soul or an ego death, uh, where some years after my third near-death experience, even though I was relatively materially successful, nothing was working at all in my life. Uh, my second marriage ended, everything fell to pieces, and I just found myself at a state of sort of uh, absolute humility. I returned from uh, Arizona, where I was living, to New York City, uh, where I'd lived for a long time, uh, working as a, as a commercial artist. And uh, um, uh, within just maybe a year or so, I, was, I experienced 9-11. I was present for 9-11. And I had this experience of liberated souls swirling around me, kind of. No, just, I'm sorry to interrupt. But I just want to understand, were you in New York City for 9-11? Is that what you're yes, saying? Yes, I was, yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. And I, you know, I was trying to live a normal life still, but nothing was working. I mean, I had great jobs and stuff like that, but at a deeper level, nothing was working for me. And then I had this moment during 9-11, the day of 9-11, when I experienced the sense of these unfettered souls or released or liberated souls swirling about the whole city like it was a gigantic kind of a um, hurricane or a tornado of souls, kind of. Wow. And I had always thought of myself as being a fairly normal guy, you know, until that point. But <laughs> something happened with me there. Uh, the combination of things not working in my life and this kind of extrasensory experience of 9-11, I sort of quit what I was doing. I went uh, north. I left town, and I found a, a, a little cabin up on the upper Delaware River. Um, I kept my place in town and commuted back and forth, but I spent a lot of time literally sitting on a rock on the edge of a river, six or seven years anyway, um, just uh, meditating and studying and all these things I'd never done before. And that's when the, the, uh, the whole thing crystallized for me. It's interesting to hear you say that. A lot of people that we've had on the show not necessarily to talk about their near-death experiences, but frequently uh, we'll have psychics and mediums on the program that talk about the beginning of their awareness of their sensitivities uh, started after one of these near-death experiences or an out-of-body experience. It's often It often seems to be uh, the credit uh, for um, some type of change in this ability to sense, read, and communicate with a different, we'll call it a spiritual dimension. Uh, that's not uncommon. It seems to be quite a catalyst. And what I'm hearing from you is that maybe after that third NDE, um, you kind of had a similar awakening uh, on uh, the day, uh, September 11th, 2001. Yeah, and it was concurrent with this other experience, this kind of dark night of the soul that I was having, where the forms of life, you know, the material forms, who I was supposed to be, what I was supposed to be doing, where I was important, where I wasn't important, how much money I had in the bank, what relationship I was in, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things 
kind of came apart at the seams for me in a way that I began to perceive life as a much larger experience. And that's when I started to have these um, these kind of uh, immediate, especially in meditation, I would have these immediate sort of transfers into a similar realm that I experienced in near death. And I would I started to, to develop this ability to perceive life in a different... I mean, we have a misperception problem most of the time, and a lot of it has to do with these forms of our life, who I'm supposed to be, what I'm supposed to be doing, et cetera, et cetera, getting in the way of really being able to perceive the incredible, miraculous nature of life, right? And a lot of times, that's where we go back to to find this kind of comfort or solace, Like particularly at a time like this right now where we have this pandemic. People are discovering that the only place that they can find that that is of true comfort is within, is in the circle of love of their friends and their family, in a place in the moment where they realize that they're all right here, right now, right? And this has to do with my second near-death experience. uh, uh, Yeah, let's talk about that second experience. Tell us what happened. Okay, I had been been leading uh, a a kind of a crazy life after the first one. I'd I'd, um, come home from work one day and said to my wife, how would you like to drop everything, quit everything, and go around the world? I didn't relate this at that time to my first near-death experience, but in retrospect, of course, I see that it probably had a lot to do with it. Sure. And uh, we left for a year and traveled around the world, and though neither of us were particularly spiritual or religious, we did end up going to a lot of temples and a lot of ruins and a lot of cathedrals and the Mayan underworld and hunting tiki in the South Pacific and all of this stuff that, in retrospect, was really of a very spiritual nature. Um, and when we returned, I was called to my aunt's bedside, and my aunt had been very critical in my young life. She she used to kind of take me out of the situation I was in for vacations and stuff, and, and she was a real um, savior to me. Um, and I was at her bedside when she died and had this kind of experience of her body, of her spirit exiting, of her spirit being in the room but not in her body. Wow. And I think it was different from what my cousin and his family were experiencing at the same time. And I walked away from that in kind of a quandary, and things were not happening for me. And my marriage went south. I headed to New York City, and I fully invested myself in this kind of riotous, nocturnal life of self-destruction, of kind of a wild man uh, artist uh, <laughs> bohemian, uh, you know, south of uh, south of 23rd Street, downtown Manhattan. And I lived that way right on the edge for uh, years until one night I had this uh, kind of cumulative um, cascading event where I fell out on the floor of my apartment, basically. You could call it a drug overdose. You could call it a lifestyle overdose. Uh, you could call it a collapse of being, kind of. And my body went completely numb from the neck down. And my 
girlfriend at the time, who was kind of very upset and was sort of hollering at me and stuff, faded off, and the room filled in with a brilliant white cloud. Hmm. Again, I felt completely exonerated from my physical form, you know, maybe slightly more connected to it than in the, the out-of-body experience, but nonetheless enfolded in the sense of pure love and the sense of transcendent unity and this expansive kind of mind again, this, the non-serial thinking mind kind of. <clears throat> and again, I had this a personage behind me that guided me to look into a certain part of this brilliant white cloud. Again, here is the radiant illumination that's described in so many near-death experiences. Yeah. And out of the heart of this cloud emerged or opened up a kind of a screen that was not like a movie screen, but more like a box of time is the way that I remember it or think of it. And it started to unfold this series of events in my life that were interactive. I felt as though I could enter back into them, like I had entered back into them and was experiencing them again. And these were not the greatest hits. This wasn't a highlights reel. Mm. These were moments that, that had the, the nature of being this sort of seminal, important uh, moments that I had not been present for with the kind of quality that I needed to have had, where I might have been injuring somebody without realizing it, missing a great opportunity uh, without noticing it, um, skating past uh, something of great beauty or great promise, you know, and one after another. And I, I only remember as not really the details of each one, although some of those have come back to me uh, in, the, in the intervening years, but I don't really include them right now because I'm just telling you what the experience itself was. And um, after maybe five or six of these, as I remember, um, this, this is sort of like intense lessons of not being present <laughs> that I was finally present for. Mm -hmm. um, I started to hear the voice of my girlfriend at the time kind of coming through the background. And as it entered back in, uh, this sort of the, this image, this place that I was in, started to kind of close up or withdraw and fade, and the details of the room started to arise back into clarity and sharpness, and her voice and her standing over me, and I was back uh, in this reality after having had this sort of what's, what's called a life review. Some people's life reviews are much more specific, uh, they're much longer. Uh, some people describe standing over a, a an area of thousands of different scenes from their life and seeing them all simultaneously. You know, the descriptions of these uh, life review experiences are really remarkable. And mine had that quality. That's why the second near-death experience for me uh, did something more uh, to change me. And, in fact, I... Um, kind of surrendered everything that I had in Manhattan at that time, and that's when I moved to uh, to Arizona, <clears throat> back to the West where I came from originally, uh, and started changing my life in, in a way. 
I'm curious, as, as I heard you describe that experience, and given the nature of the way it happened to you, it wasn't an accident, you know, it wasn't like the first one where you were in a car accident. Right. Uh, do you think there was something deliberate, and I mean spiritually deliberate about that? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, in retrospect, of course, everything appears scripted mm-hmm. in our lives, mm-hmm. in a way, um, that you can't really imagine going forward. Uh, but as things happen to you, then, the, and this is the gift of that, of that experience, I call it the gift of presence, which is this ability to witness the profound potential of every moment. Right. You know, we're always experiencing life in in what I call the eternal moment, in this moment right now, right, J.V.? I mean, right now, you and I are talking about this. Right now, I can reach into this box of time, and I can mess around with it. I can create good karma. I can create bad karma. Or in this case, I'm probably trying to repair karma. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Yeah. And so this is right here. That's the power of our conscious participation in this moment, consciously engaging in this moment as the only time that we can affect the creation of any reality, whether it's this life, the next life, and I presume past lives that I don't remember. When you left that second experience, and as you had a chance to consider it, maybe digest it a little bit, did you see things in that life review that you realized you needed to change or maybe start or maybe finish? Um, yeah, you know, that it really did. Um, uh, that was being knocked upside the head in a way that made me rethink certain aspects of my life. Um, I still con- continued uh, to be kind of a party guy. I went out west uh, to Arizona to help my brother with a project. And um, I ended up kind of restarting. I found a little house that I rehabilitated and stuff. And I think that I am... Um, spontaneously started to uh, experience these kind of heavenly principles, I would, I would say, uh, that I, I think of as being heavenly principles of uh, kindness and honesty and humility and forgiveness and compassion and service, these things that kind of align us with an experience, a heavenly experience, is the way that I present it in the second book. And without really thinking about it, consciously being aware of it, I was bringing more of that into my life, and I was behaving uh, more in, in that way. And that led, to, um, uh, that led to this moment after my third one, too, where, um, you know, I, had, I became teachable. I became really teachable. Everything kind of fell away from me. And uh, I was left as my authentic self, which I think of in this moment, is being who's talking to you, hopefully, but also the spirit that uh, was continuous through all of these experiences. And I, I assume before this life, and I know after this life. Also, don't forget to go by uh, YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Very easy to find. Just search for me, my name, J.V. Johnson. You'll find it. And we have an archive of about 600 back episodes on the YouTube channel. It's also where our chat room takes place during the live program. We live stream there, and the chat room is uh, very, very active and a lot of fun, most of the time anyway. Also, the podcast version of the show is available on all major podcast networks, 
We have uh, tens of thousands of downloads every day. We appreciate everyone who listens to the program as a podcast. I know that most people (laughs) would listen during their morning commute. And I don't mean to laugh because we're not in a funny situation right now, but not many people are commuting these days. Things have, uh, have changed for the short term, hopefully. Hopefully just the short term. Anyway, Robert Kopecki is our guest tonight. We're talking about his near-death experiences plus his books, How to Survive Life and Death and also How to Get to Heaven Without Really Dying. Robert, before we pick up the conversation, where can people get the books? Where can they find them? Well, you can get them online. I like to, I like to encourage people to ask at their local mom-and-pop bookstore when such places will be back open again. The neighborhood bookstore has always been one of my favorite places, and so I, I like to suggest people get them there. But they're available through the major handlers and online. You've talked a couple of times about the near-death experiencer community, that there's actually kind of a, a social network of folks who have had these experiences. They share their experiences with one another. Um, obviously, this is something that people do when they've had any kind of experience that they share in common with someone else. But do you think that there's something about the near-death experience itself that creates some type of spiritual connection among these people? Yeah, there there definitely is. I mean, it's, you know, if you've ever been someplace where everybody is really on the same page, you know. <laughs> I mean, there are some, some groups I speak with, and <clears throat> I speak to, where there's um, a lot of skeptics and stuff in the audience, and so it's a slightly different kind of experience. But when I go to, uh, for example, the International Association for Near-Death Study, IONS, <clears throat> which you can go to online, they have a great website. It's a beautiful organization that's global in nature that organizes uh, near-death experiencers uh, of, of uh, all uh, races, religions, uh, sizes, and shapes, and they have a uh, they have events at chapters all over the country and all over the world, and have a um, a big conference every year. The next one is is slated to be in August in Salt Lake City. Uh, I've spoken at a couple of them uh, now since 2014 when my first book came out, and uh, it, you know you you walk into the place and there are 300 people. Uh, maybe a third of them are actually experiencers themselves. And uh, the rest of them are people that are really interested in the subject and maybe have uh, spiritual practices of their own that that overlap or reinforce, are reinforced by the near-death experiences. Have you noticed in discussing these experiences with other experiencers whether or not there's a difference? We've talked about cultural and religious differences, but what about the difference of the circumstances of the the near-death experience itself? For example... You had a significant near-death experience as a result of a car accident. Um, You had another one um, that uh, occurred on the floor of your apartment, and both of those experiences were very, very different. What about somebody who maybe is in a hospital and is is under uh, anesthesia and in surgery, and their heart stops beating beating for a couple minutes and then they're revived? Or uh, a different circumstance that I'm not thinking of. Are there any similarities, or what are the differences between those types of experiences? Yeah, you know, there's such a range of experiences, and they can be brought on in so many different ways that I I, I couldn't really classify them uh, that way. I don't think that they okay. are classifiable uh, that way. Um, <clears throat> I've talked to people who I had very, very similar experiences to, 
who came into them in entirely different ways than I did mine, you know. So <clears throat> there's really kind of no uh, given to that. And that, to me, is, is was one of the things that really led me into my studies and, and uh, speaking and writing and stuff, is having had the three and having them be also different, that I, I, I couldn't... Um, I couldn't turn away from the fact that each one was teaching me some major issue, teaching me about some major issue about life writ much larger. And uh, so it is, I think, for every near-death experiencer, uh, as I said at the top of the show, they're they're all custom-made for the people who are experiencing them. And each of us comes back with some things in common, but other things not in common at all, and each with our own individual means of of, uh, communicating the lessons we learned. What happened the third time, Robert? Uh, The third time, I had been traveling back and forth between New York City and a small town in Arizona, a university town. And I was was definitely more... um, I was more present for my life after having had the second near-death experience, but I was still pretty ungrounded, uh, and uh, I was looking for things to make life work. And I got uh, involved in another relationship and and was engaged to be married and had gone out to this small town from New York, and it was Super Bowl Sunday. And so I I went uh, out with some friends and watched uh, watched the game, and after that I went into a public square, and this will tell you when this happened, too. There was a payphone that I called. (laughs) This was before cell phones. This is about 97 or so. Um, I called my fiancé, and a a great big kid uh, who appeared to be slightly inebriated, we used to call skinheads. You know, he was kind of a... uh, I don't know, neo-Nazi may not, may be too specific, but um, sort of filled that format, you know. He came up and started to assault me when I was on the phone. Now, maybe it was because I looked like I had just come from the big city. Um, and he started calling me names and stuff, and I talked him down. And uh, at one point, he reached in and hung up the phone on me while oh, I was talking. And I talked him down and sent him away and called my uh, fiance back and after I got on the phone with her, he came back only much more aggressively Oof. and started shoving me and hollering uh, derisive names at me. And one of the things that I had done as a kid to kind of escape, and now I, in retrospect I see it was a spiritual aspect of my early life, is that I got heavily into martial arts. So I was real good at punching. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I punched this guy out, basically. He went down and... Uh, People around me applauded, you know. They were like, good for you. That guy really it, deserved a, a kind of thing. it. And a, I thought, that's a good time to... Yeah, it was a karate it. kid moment, for sure. It was, yeah, this is a good time for me to make my escape, is what I thought. Sure, so yeah. I left, I hopped on my bike, and I was riding home. I didn't realize there were a van full of these guys who oh, had witnessed geez. me punch their friend. And so they drove up alongside of me and hit me in the back of the head with a crowbar or a tire iron, oh, something wow. like that and knocked me headfirst into the curb off my bike. And then, according to the police report that I saw better than a year later, uh, they got in and out of their van for almost an hour, stomping and kicking me and stuff while I was unconscious. Wow. Now, fortunately, I was not 
present for that anymore because I had once again been essentially liberated from the material aspects of my life, thank right. God. Right. I wasn't in a... Um, a real heavenly place uh, this time, though. It was less so than the, the first two. There was nothing particularly radiantly illuminative about it at all. In fact, it was kind of subterranean or womb-like, which might be appropriate. Uh, um, I felt like I was, you know, in this warm, dark, enclosed place with a, a number of personages around me, sort of encircling me. And I was struggling in fact, to stay there, because I had this sense of, of violence going on, almost like in the next room or something, you know, like outside of here, I could feel this kind of violent activity going on, and I wanted desperately to stay in this just feeling of pure love yeah. and transcendent unity and being surrounded by, you know, these sort of loving this matrix of loving intelligence expressing itself through these personages. But they told me that I could not stay, that I had not done things. And this is, you know, this is the return to life, the forced return to life kind of near-death experience format that a lot of people have. I hadn't done things right. I had to come back. There were things I needed to do. There was a sort of a plan that I needed to fulfill. And they picked me up, as I remember it, it was like a bunch of hands picking me up. In this, in this sense, I felt more like a body in this experience. And they pushed me through what seemed like a membrane to me, and I kind of popped through it. And I opened my eyes, and I was laying on my back on a street in this Arizona town with an emergency medical worker over me who said, He's back. Wow. It took a long time for me to recover uh, from that one. I had a lot of injuries. Um, it was the most painful. It was my least favorite near-death experience, yeah. if, you, if you get to have such a thing. Again, I don't recommend it, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I, I came back from that, and it was really only a matter of time um, after that and that I had this experience of everything kind of falling apart and being left just with my authentic self, and this realization that I wasn't going to star in Marty Scorsese's next movie, I wasn't going to be on the cover of, of some magazine or on Oprah or anything like that, uh, that I had something here to do that was maybe simpler than I ever realized it was, <coughs> excuse me, and had to do with this package of karma, of karmic information, that I am, uh, that I am uniquely positioned to complete uh, this course that's, that's sort of required for me to show up for, to remove the obstacles to love in my life, to sort of fulfill these karmic callings, to close up these karmic circles in my life and uh, to um, participate in the world in a more productive and meaningful way uh, is part of my purpose. I call this the gift of purpose I got from the third near-death experience. So with the gift of purpose that you received, you decided to share all of this experience and information uh, in your books. Um, how long after the third experience, 
their near-death experience did you decide to write about it? Um, you know, it was, a, it was a, about six or seven years. Uh, this is the point at which I came back to New York City. I experienced 9-11. Right. And then I got the, the little house on the upper Delaware River and uh, sat, by the, sat by the river. I took up a meditation practice. I became really interested in all kinds of texts, uh, in quantum physics, in uh, religion, and scripture and stuff, stuff that I had never been interested in at all. And uh, I had a, an anim- I was doing animation design for uh, Cartoon Network and PBS Kids and stuff like that. That was my regular job. And <clears throat> I had a blog that I still have, uh, uh, com, where I was um, posting artwork and stuff. And I started posting essays, these things that would come to me while I was sitting on my rock. And... Uh, I started getting contacted by uh, different sites, uh, you know, online publications that were interested in having me write for them. Uh, uh, so, um, uh, Belief.net or Gaia.com or uh, uh, Soul Lifetimes, uh, Mindful Word, they're all places that I publish and have been published online. Um, and I, beca- I was becoming a writer. I was becoming a teacher. I, at that time, too, was, um, was volunteering in a recovery ward in a downtown Manhattan hospital I did for nine years. So probably six or seven years into this experience, I just got this calling to write about the experiences. And my meditation practice had gotten to a point where I was beginning to spontaneously realize the kinds of experiences I'd had in near death. Uh, I was starting to have that sense of pure love that experience of radiant illumination, of transcendent unity. I became teachable, right? So the karmic instruction aspect of my near-death experiences came into this life, too. And I I underwent this kind of renewal in my life where I became a vegetarian. And, you know, I started talking about things that I had never been talking about before. My first book came to me rather quickly and was kind of miraculously published and led to... um, led to the second book um, a couple of years ago. In 2018, the second book came out. I'm working on my third one now. As you decided to share all of this, um, did you feel as though this was part of, I guess, what would be considered the purpose that you mentioned before, at the purpose that you became aware of from the, the culmination of these three experiences? Um. Yeah, yeah, but as a byproduct of my life, I mean, this traveling around and talking to large groups of people or being on radio shows like like yours, and so thank you, JV, for that, um, or having books published by by uh, publishers and stuff is is nothing I ever could have imagined yeah. uh, would happen, and it, it, it still is a little surreal to me at times kind of you know it's kind of like this experience that we're all going through right now with the pandemic where like i said earlier you have no choice but to uh, redefine your life uh suddenly uh, um, success is redefined for you it has nothing to do with the stuff that you're not doing anymore <laughs> you know oh, yeah 
the stuff that you go out and do in life that is supposed to be the important part of your life is not important, really. It is not what's important to us. What's important is fulfilling this calling in our life, being able to complete and create uh, karma, to repair our karma, uh, so to speak, and to close up these kind of karmic circles. Um, like, for example, I just had an experience where uh, my father, who's lived uh, halfway around the world for 45 years, and I've had very little contact with him, he got in touch with me and came because he was so sick. He came to Palm Springs, where I'm living now in California. And I got a chance to help him recover from pneumonia and sit knee to knee and talk with him about the experiences of our early lives together in a way that I had not talked to him for 40 years about. And I realized that only because I was present in a way that I hadn't been and that I recognized that, you know, this is not a, this is not a Hollywood movie. This is my life and my opportunity to close this circle up in a way that I could never have done before. And so I was there for him. I got him recovered and actually sent him back home to the Philippines where he lives happily uh, just before all of the, um, all the travel uh, stuff stopped. Uh, so that to me uh, is just as important that kind of experience in my life, and I'm, I'm telling other people that these kinds of experiences in our lives are just as important as anything fantastic and grand and, and uh, you know, celebrated uh, that you might imagine for yourself, that we're really here to fulfill a very specific kind of set of circumstances that we are creating for ourselves all of the time through our conscious engagement in life. All right, so um, I get to go off and talk to people and stuff. Uh, had to cancel a bunch of stuff, uh, uh, but yeah. you know I also get to be present for uh, my uh, my my dad uh, again in a way that I couldn't have been. So that's the important stuff, right? You um, there are two books right now. You said you're working on a third. How to Survive Life and Death is the first book. How to Get to Heaven Without Really Dying is the second book. Do you recommend they be read in sequence, or doesn't it matter? Well, How to Survive Life and Death is really a kind of an ameliorative tome for people that have uh, issues with death. Uh, so I, I'm really uh, I'm sort of in a kind of a homespun way. It's the funnest book that you'll ever read about death, <laughs> is the way that I like to think about it. Um, and, and that's what that's designed to do, is to help you with uh, this reality of death and dying, and the, uh, the idea that all near-death experiencers come back uh, with this understanding, that it doesn't end here, you know, that it was, I was alive before I was here, I'm alive now, and I will be alive. We're always alive. And so there are ways to deal with, um, with uh, the experience. Like Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> Right? And how to, how to get to heaven without really dying is about how to um, find these, this kind of common experience of a state of being. Everybody's experienced a, a little piece of heaven in their life. How do you grab a hold of that and expand that in this moment, whether there's a pandemic going on outside or if, you've, you know, if you're going to be on TV or whatever is going on, you're getting married, whatever it is, 
It's in this moment you have an opportunity to experience heaven in your heart and in your life and to expand it in your life. That's what the second book's about. And what is the third book going to address? Uh, That's going to be called the, The Zen of Near Death. And it really is going to be about how uh, we deal with these aspects of this life. And I started it well before anything like the pandemic was was on the horizon. But it's a very suitable kind of a situation for what I'm talking about. It has to do with um, a kind of an expanded or focused uh, look at um, how aspects of near-death can be applied in much the same way as how to get to heaven, but uh, more Zen-like, you know. Uh, that I think I've ended up, if I could be called religious in any way, I'm probably closer to being a Buddhist than anything else, which really is a mind science. It's not a religion. But I, um, um, Hinduism and Buddhism really resonate profoundly with me when I read them and... and uh, I have a section in How to Get to Heaven about the, the Bhagavad Gita and the Buddhist Dhammapada and Gnostic Christianity and the poetry of Rumi, uh, too, where I, I talk about um, the things I'm going to expand on in the Zen of Near Death. We've, uh, we've covered a lot of ground tonight. We've talked a lot, of, a lot about, about a lot of concepts, not the least of which is the fact that our lives are somewhat eternal and that the life... The lives of cassette tapes are not, and phone booths are not. <laughs> Those things are not eternal. Um, They're gone. I know that things are kind of uh, wacky right now. Uh, you did say that you you speak and and you um, you know you you talk uh, in front of crowds. Is there anything that uh, people should be paying attention to, or is the best place to go to your website to see what your calendar is? I don't know how that works. Yeah, that's a good thing to do. I'm I'm supposed to be speaking now in June at the uh, International Association for Near-Death Studies chapter in Santa Barbara, California. So that will be on my uh, site and stuff. And then at the um, the Salt Lake City uh, conference, I'll, I'll be there, uh, too, if, if nothing else, signing books, but probably presenting uh, there. But, you know, we don't know if any of these things are, are happening. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, that's, this is a good example of uh, what I'm talking about, redefining success, because all of this stuff is coming and going. All of this stuff is changing all the time. What you thought your material life was one minute may not be the next minute. So what is eternal? What is enduring? Um, The Hindus say the things that don't change is reality. That's the reality. All the rest of it is coming and going all of the time. And that certainly is the nature of our collective experience now. Nothing that we thought we were is what we are suddenly. You know, we are all unified completely in this moment by this experience of this pandemic, and all given uh, our own internal lives as a place to find solace and to find uh, healing and saving is you know by closing up this circle that we're all living in with those we love and uh, uh, taking care of one another on a much larger scale the same way. That's a shared purpose. I think when we come out of this, too, you're going to see people caring a lot more about the environment. It'll be probably a good conditioning for us to deal with uh, global warming, for example. 
Once again, let people know where they can find your books. Uh, I'm also a firm believer in supporting local mom-and-pop bookstores or any kind of mom-and-pop retailers, for that matter. Um, Right now, that's a bit challenging, uh, but where where can people find the books? The the first book is published by Konari, Red Wheel Wiser, How to Survive Life and Death. And the second book is published by Llewellyn Worldwide. So they're available on those websites, but, you know, also on all the major online uh, purveyors of, of books and available uh, both as e-readers and as paperbacks, uh, too. And you can always check uh, com or my website. Great. Robert, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Um, I agree with most of the comments in our chat room. This was very inspirational and very informative. And I'm looking forward to having you back on the program at some point. Well, thanks, J.V. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. I'm sorry about the circumstances for everyone, but um, hang in there. We will get through this and we'll come out of it in a better form. We'll be able to uh, create heaven, hopefully, after this. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.